back to Mark's Madness. Yeah, we are back. We are doing it again. We're doing it again. Welcome back to Mark's Madness Pod. We read books. My name is Nathan. My name's David. And we will be continuing on our journey through neocolonialism by Kwame Nkrumah, a.k.a. the book with more French names per capita than any other book I've ever read. Uh, (laughs) So many goddamn French names. So many. I have a feeling there's more coming. We're doing companies and combines this week. There's there's flowcharts, people. There's flowcharts. So uh, get get ready for us to say and skip that page uh, a couple times throughout this episode. But that being said, uh, we will start as we always start. most of the time, some of the time, eh, 50%, you know, it's, it's good. We're going to start with current events, uh, which means yes. I kick it over to David, and David talks about things that are current and eventful. Uh, yeah, so several things have been happening in the world. Um, probably the biggest one uh, was the Hunga Tonga eruption and tsunami. Um, yes. So there was an enormous volcanic eruption in the Pacific Ocean, yep. and it was, I mean, like, people could hear it from Australia and New Zealand, and it was, like, terrifyingly large. And because of this, of course, you know, several uh, Pacific countries received um, uh, tsunami warnings, and one of them for sure uh, got hit and that was uh, um, uh, Tonga which was where the volcano actually erupted right yeah. and Tonga doesn't have highlands from what I understand okay. uh, yeah um, so again I, I, I'm not going to pretend like I'm I'm incredibly knowledgeable about Tonga but you know this volcanic eruption was very destructive to, to a small island two people uh, are already pronounced dead several are are missing uh four people are injured um to my understanding the only country that has lent out any aid so far has been china China. Um, western countries have not reached out very well yeah yeah uh western countries have not reached out very well um but you know i mean when you get crushed like by a tsunami that is that is hard flowing water and even a few inches doesn't sound like much can really sweep you under just like an undercurrent in a river. And of course, you know, those can be a few feet tall and cause them bent flooding deeply inland, crushing buildings, taking debris with them. I mean, we've seen tsunamis just absolutely lambast countries before. There was uh, one within the last decade, uh, I think in Japan that, that like, you know, nailed Tokyo, um, you know, tsunamis yeah. are very, very dangerous. So, um, you know, we have to be able to see if there's any way we can reach out in solidarity with the, the, uh, citizens of Tonga. And we once again have to understand, um, the hypocrisy of, of Western countries because not only is there not as much publication as you'd think from a tsunami like this, um, but, uh, although there is coverage, um, but a lot of the coverage basically falls on like, oh, you know, we've let China build, uh, connections instead of us. This is the, the failing instead of like, we should help the people because they need help. Yeah. Not that I would trust Western countries to help people after, you know, 2010 in Haiti and 20, was it 17 in Puerto Rico and mm. all of the disasters of, of, you know, Western natural disaster help. Uh, it's just bad, you know. So one of the few times that we have a, a natural disaster that 
probably isn't influenced by climate change and bad policy. It's an actual, like, real-law, natural disaster, which yeah. is not something you'll hear me say uh, very often these days, because most, quote-unquote, natural disasters are very political choices. Um, and even with that, it's immediately apparent uh, who the powers of be are and who they do and don't care about. Yep. So I think the only other thing I saw uh, was uh, Issa Tuma, who was a uh, famous Syrian photographer for a couple decades in Idlib and had made the BBC for basically recording some of the invasion in Idlib, um, made it to England. And there was just an article where uh, he had spoken out and basically was like, yeah, you know, it was terrifying when i went to sweden after i after i escaped it was terrifying was there because we were worried about cut off power or we were worried about not getting any communication out it was unsurprisingly basically like right after i stopped recording um kind of the secular western backed forces uh fighting the syrian forces that all of a sudden they were replaced uh mm. by the you know jihadist extremists that 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 you know basically control Idlib now and all of the extremists and and all of the uh fundamentalists and and, and fascists um that are so western back get just breathless coverage with no fact checking um even lying about where they're from and whatever their stories are in all all of the ngos and all of the human rights orgs and everything all over you know when he went to sweden and, and of course england afterward um and so that was published i know um I know, uh, I think it was Cover Action magazine that published it, but it was a really good article out there. So, again, you know, showing that Western media is just full of shit when it comes to Syria or any any U.S. official enemy. So, um, but, you know, you can, you can read that yourself if you want to look at Syria. It's called Syrian Extremists Had Free Access to Western Media, uh, says Syrian Photographer, and it's about Issa Tuma. So Very good. Very good. Well, if there are no other current events, we will launch into the reading for this week. We are starting at a nice round chapter 12, Companies and Combines. To give anything like a complete account of the complicated network of foreign companies which at present governs so much of Africa's economic life would be impossible within the space of a single book. Parentheses, but I'm going to try and do it anyway. Kwame Nkrumah. Uh, yet some reference to the most important of them is necessary. And in many cases of their connecting interests, in many cases, their connecting interests can be shown in diagram form. Great for an audio pot. Thank you. And Kruma for thinking of the poor podcasters who would have to try and convey this knowledge, uh, once again, but, uh, but good on you behind the facade of separateness, strong connecting links bind these powerful firms together. In East Africa, one of the most powerful concerns was Tanganyika concessions. The name is misleading. It was actually registered in London towards the end of January 1899. Today, control of the company is wielded from Salisbury, Rhodesia, whence it was removed in the latter part of 1950. Operations in Tanganyika have not yet been fully developed, though they cover two important gold mines and a mineral company and include some prospecting. The company's writ has greater significance in Zambia, where it acquired from British South Africa Company a concession over a large area, together with certain prospecting rights from Z- blah, 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 certain prospecting rights. There we go. From <laughs> Zambia, its activities spawn into the Congo, where it controls a mineral concession of 60,000 square miles secured from the Katanga Belgian Special Committee. For giving Tanganyika concession rights over this expanse of Congolese land, the Katanga Committee enjoyed the benefit of a 60% share in the royalty paid by Union Minerai. 
We must not, for one moment, however, allow ourselves to be led into the error of thinking that Tanganyika concessions thus permitted themselves to be bested by the special committee. The company became a member of the committee. In the way of financiers, who cautiously and shrewdly do not place all their eggs in a single basket, a new organization was created to take care of a concession covering a surface area about three-fifths the size of Ghana. This is celebrated... This is the celebrated Union Minerai de Hot Katanga, whose reputation over the years has become notorious for the merciless exploitation of the Congo. Which is a pretty grotesque reputation to have, considering how exploited the Congo has been. Exactly. If you're leading Congolese exploitation, you fucking suck. You are very, very bad. You might be the the most evil entity on the planet, yeah. Exactly, yeah. I was about to say, if you're besting King Leopold, uh, holy shit. Mm -hmm. Another strategic interest of Tanganyika concessions is the railway running from Lobito Bay in Angola up to the Angola-Congo border, operated by the Benguela Railway Company, Campagno de Comijo de Ferro de Benguela. The railway company is a creation of Tanganyika Concessions, which holds 2.7 million pounds, or 90% of its two-pound shares, as well as the whole of the debenture capital. The Beguelo Railway, during 1961, built a branch line from the town of Robert Williams into the mining region of Gumia, which was opened in August 1962. Commonwealth Timber Industries Limited, a vast forestry and lumber concern, is also 60% owned by Tanganyika Concessions. Novaboard UK Limited, the English affiliate of Commonwealth Timber, was able, with the assistance of African company, companies with which the Societe Generale is associated, to construct a sawmill and factory for the manufacture of fiberwood panels at Thetford in Norfolk. The, company's capac- the factory's capacity will make possible the production of 25 million square feet of panels yearly, the capital invested being around £2 million. When Tanganyika Concessions was about to change its headquarters from London to Salisbury, it gave an undertaking to H.M. Treasury, which no doubt had some bearing on the government's will, government's vacillating policy in the breakdown of the Central African Federation. It must also color its behavior in regard to the Congo and to Portuguese rule in Africa. The undertaking provided that for a minimum period of 10 years, Tanganyika Concessions would not, without consent of the British Treasury, dispose of or charge or pledge its interests or any part thereof in Union Minerai de Hot Katanga or the Benguela Railway, except in the case of the latter to the Portuguese government under the terms of the Concessions Agreement. Okay, so now we've got financial monopolies basically throwing these exploited countries in the middle of a tug of war over the land and and the resources here. Um, The limitation did not end with the expiration of the 10-year period. As a conjunctive clause provided subsequently, no sale or other disposal of such interests or any part thereof, except as aforesaid, God, that is some annoying lawyer speak, uh, shall be made without the securities proposed to be sold or otherwise disposed of, first being offered to HM Treasury at the same price or on the same terms as have been offered to a third party. So basically, I mean, this is... We technically don't have exclusive rights, but we legally for sure have exclusive rights. And mm-hmm. you don't get to sell and, and be independent and get better offers or anything like that. You've got to offer to us first and give exact terms of everybody else, right? I mean, it's it's what we see in like sports with like a restricted free agent except of, you know, extraction monopoly of another country's resources. 
We did it. We made it a sports reference. Hey, who? <laughs> Yay. <laughs> Yay. Uh, these provisions have given the British government a direct concern in the operations of Tanganyika concessions, Union Minaret, and the Benguala Railway, which is bound to influence their behavior in relation to the independent struggle of Southern and Central Africa. More particularly, in view of the special relations with Great Britain has had with its oldest ally, Portugal. From the viewpoint, or from the, well, basically from the viewpoint, from the point of view of the companies themselves, they must feel encouraged by the special interest of the British government in maintaining their strategic position across the great central belt of Africa. Tanganyika concessions, both directly and through Tanganyika Holdings, has an important participation in Rhodesia Katanga Company Limited, with which, in conjunction with Zambezia Exploring, interests were acquired in the Kakamanga Goldfield, Kenya, which were transferred to Kenton Gold Areas, in which Rhodesia Katanga has substantial holdings. Rhodesia Katanga is indebted to the British South Africa Company, so it looks like we're back to the Oppenheimers and the uh, Morgans again, mm-hmm. uh, by reason of the perpetual mining rights of the latter has granted it over any minerals, including the coal, but excluding diamonds and precious stones, which may be found about 2,500 square miles of Zambia. Additionally, it has perpetual coal mining rights in 20 areas of 300 acres, each subject to 15% interest in the British South Africa Company. To complete Tanganyika Concessions' roster of subsidiaries, there is the wholly owned Tanganyika Properties Rhodesia Limited, registered in Salisbury, Rhodesia. It offers office and staff accommodation together with allied services as well as holding certain investments. And then we have a fancy chart. Flow chart that shows um, you how Tanganyika Concessions is structured and moving on. Yes. Uh, it's the same companies you've been hearing about, which means it's yeah. the same boards of directors you've been hearing about. Uh, consolidated profits made by Tanganyika Concessions for the year end 31 July 1961 was £3.2 million out of a total revenue of £4.4 million. Its current assets are £4.3 million in shares and debentures of Benguela Railway Company, £5.3 million in shares and loan to Commonwealth Timber, £1.3 million in Tanganyika Holdings, and £4 million in Union I think that's supposed to be Minaret, and there's just a typo with a U, yeah. uh, whose ramifications will be examined in a later chapter. Uh, coming to the Southwest Africa Company Limited, we find Anglo-American Corporation and Consolidated Goldfields. So here we go. I, I, I said Oppenheimers and Morgans earlier. I think it was more Oppenheimers. Here's the Morgans. Yep. Uh, merging to exploit the vast section of the wealth of Southern Africa. The Southwest Africa Company Limited was registered in London in 18 August 1892 and has a special grant of elusive prospecting and mining rights over some 3,000 square miles of Damara land concessionary of Southwest Africa. So again, they essentially have property claims in these company or in these countries filtered through these companies. So American and British and French, um, you know, ruling class people, super wealthy colonizers basically owned all the land in Africa, you know, instead of Africans themselves, but there's not a British or American or French flag planted. They all kind of collaborate through these corporations to own it. And you want central control, but as long as somebody has control, that's better than the actual country having its own nationalized control. This grant was made by the administration of Southwest Africa for a period of five years until January 2nd, 1942, and has since been renewed until January 2nd, 1967. I'm sure it's since been renewed since then. Uh, 
The company also holds mining areas in various other districts in Southwest Africa. It produces tin, wolfram, and zinc lead concentrates, as well as vanadates. Large areas of land, such as those held by the Southwest Africa Company, demand extremely heavy capital investment to exploit and encourage the formation of alliances between groups desirous of controlling the output, distribution, and hence prices of raw material. Not only that, it facilitates the channeling of their processing through allied organizations. To pursue this policy of coordination, the Southwest Africa Company signed an agreement with a joint Anglo-American Consolidated Goldfields venture by which it subleased certain rights to explore and exploit its possessions. It tells us to see chart three. We're going to skip chart three because it is a goddamn chart. Uh, but again, another flow chart that shows a bunch of control in you know american and european uh investments right i mean south mm-hmm. africa company links to anglo-american to union corporation uh to american metal climax i think that's the only one i haven't heard of yet uh new pot mining all the way down new pot mining corporation was formed in the delaware usa on 2 may 1921 The purpose of the company is to acquire, develop, finance, and operate mining properties. For this purpose, a share of capital of $60 million has been authorized. On December 31, 1961, $2.8 million of the authorized $6 million shares had been issued and paid up. Mining exploration is carried on by the company through the Newmont Exploration Limited, Delaware, Newmont Mining Corporation of Canada Limited, and Newmont of South Africa, Party Limited. Chart 4 gives some idea of the extent of their interest. That was the chart I just read. I guess I didn't see Chart 3. Yeah, no, Chart um, 4 is coming up. Chart 4 is coming up next. You haven't missed oh, it no, yet. that is Chart 3. Chart 4 is yeah, coming up. Yeah, okay. Yeah, but yeah. after it says that, shows Chart 3. Yep. Uh, we've already met a certain uh, of the Rio Tinto companies in Zambia and Rhodesia have touched upon others connected with Societe Generale de Belgique's associations with the North American financial and industrial scene. The Rio Tinto complex is one that would be hard to miss in any attempt to examine the ramifications of international mining world. It stretches from the United Kingdom across Spain into Africa and over the Atlantic into Canada and the USA, with forays into Germany, Belgium, Austria, Australia, and elsewhere. The hands of the Anglo-American Corporation, Consolidated Zinc Corporation, and world-embracing aluminum groups are firmly clasped within it, and representatives of the Congo combination of companies adorn the directorates which bear such aristocratic names as Rothschilds and Cavendish Bentnick. Cavendish, I think. Cavendish. 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 Oh, that sounds the, actually familiar. Cavendish. Yeah. That sounds like a familiar British snooty people. Yeah. <sighs> Though its original interests were mining pyrites in Spain, the Rio Tinto Company Limited was registered in London in 1873. Keeping up with the times and the general trend towards combination and monopoly, the company underwent certain changes. Its directors were among the most fervent supporters of General Franco at the time of the Spanish Civil War. Hey, it's a Franco reference, gang. Yeah, nice. Good good to have the fascists on board, just, yep, just yep. for kicks. Just make sure they're aligned correctly and perfect. This mm. devotion to the Cadillo's cause undoubtedly prospered them so that together with their associates in the wider financial sphere, they have been able to spread their tentacles through the zinc and aluminum industry into the precious metals and general metals fields. In 1954, Rio Tinto transferred its Spanish assets to a company which it formed in Spain with a capital of 1 billion pesetas, pesetas under the title of Compañía Española del Minas de Rio Tinto S.A. For this worthy proof of its sensitiveness to the Spanish patriotism, it received a compensation of 36 million pesetas in settlement of profits accumulated up to the 1st of January 1954. 
And all the 333,000 B shares of 1,000 pesetas each in the new company. Additionally, it was awarded a sterling payment of £7 million. Rio Tinto still draws a retainer as provider of technical and commercial services in London for the Spanish company, in which its holding of all the B shares still gives it a direct interest. Skipping a flowchart, Rio Tinto is now an investment holding company whose financial operations have brought it into the forefront of industrial entrepreneurship. Africa is well um, uh, well up among its spheres of activity, its most important holdings on the continent being Rhodesia Corporation and Nechanga Copper Mines, where, as we have seen, it is associated with the British South Africa Company, Anglo-American Corporation, Union Corporation, Tanganyika Concessions, Union Minerae, and Rand Selection Trust in their holdings in the important Rhodesian and South African mining and industrial ventures. So torturous, torturous, and incredibly expansile are the links that tie the groups exploiting Africa's resources with those enriching themselves in other corners of the earth that we should find nothing remarkable in being led back from Rio Tinto and Africa via some of the most powerful American and British financial forces into Rio Tinto in Canada. One of the most lively motivating springs of monopoly is to forestall in new or unexplored areas the entry of rival groups, and where this proves abortive or impossible, to collaborate with them. We shall see in a later chapter how Canadian El Dorado forced Union Minerae to bring down the price of uranium, and how their interests lock through Songume's representation on the former's board. In the, Western, in the world of Western free enterprise, competition is being eroded by Monopoly's role of the Lone Ranger after undivided profits. So again, I, the purpose is creating and maintaining Monopoly, right? You mm-hmm. want to be the first person there. You want to make sure that you've covered yourself. You've got an exclusive rights to the private property of entire other countries so you can tap the resources as needed and bully everyone out. Uh, and if you can't do that, then you just flex your big, fancy financial muscle to collaborate with them and snack up some of their profits and you know maybe grab some of their stocks, whatever, and become the owner anyway. And this is as good a time as any to say that if, for whatever reason, that sentence says you're like, well, hold on a second. Is that how monopolies work? We did a whole series on capital. Go listen to it. It's fun. Um, (laughs) It's it's fun and exciting. And it'll tell you, yes, that's exactly what they do. Um, One of the most lively motivating springs of monopoly is to, that is a sentence I've already read. Thus, (laughs) our African riches brought to the (laughs) manipulative ramifications of international finance capital. Between Societe Generale and Rio Tinto, there is interposed a solid phalanx of interwoven power that moves out stealthily across the world. Breaking into the aluminum world, Rio Tinto formed an alliance with Consolidated Zinc Corporation Limited. This merger appeared superficially to bring together two powerful groups having no joint leading strings. I bet there's leading strings. (laughs) This ostensible separation would mislead only the ignorant. Its subterfuge is immediately destroyed by a single glance at its combined directorate, which at once shows up the connections with South African mining and financial interests. P.V. Emrys Evans is a prominent member, and the retired Honorable Lord Ballew, KBECMG, Deputy Chairman. Lord Ballew is also Deputy Chairman of the Central Mining and Investment Corporation Limited, a leading investment and finance house within the Anglo-American group of companies directed by Harry F. Oppenheimer and C.W. Engelhardt. Mr. Emrys Evans is also important in his own right, being vice president of the British South Africa Company and a director of Anglo-American. And then we get the Rio Tinto flowchart, chart number five. Again, if you want to look at it, 
there's there's a free copy of the book on the internet you can go look at it yeah yeah it also says like you know african interests australian interests canadian interests if you do look at that flow chart that means the interest in those companies where they're mining not the interest in where those monies are going obviously the interest where the monies are going is in the u.s and uk and spain and france yep however the connection goes further than that British South Africa Holdings Limited and some of its associates under agreement dated December 7th, 1960, subscribed 10 million pounds to consolidated zinc in the form of 5.5% loan stock in the return for options to acquire 2.2 million ordinary shares of one pound each in consolidated zinc at a price of 87 sterling, six whatever's below sterling a share. Here we enter into, or 87 shillings, shillings, six, whatever's below a shilling, a share. Fucking okay. so much money in here. Um, yeah, just too much money from too many different first world countries just flinging They bought money a bunch around. of stock. They bought a bunch of stock for a dollar a share to buy it at less than a dollar a share. There yeah, you go. basically. Here we enter into the intricate maze of aluminum financial policies into which Consolidated Zinc has made deep incursions by its alliance with Kaiser Aluminum and Chemical Corporation in Commonwealth Aluminum Corporation Party Limited, commonly known as Comelco. You all know Comelco. Oh, yeah. The options. Yeah. The yeah, options Comelco. Comelco. The options There's like 800,000 br- different combinations of what is essentially like Amico all over the stand book. Exactly. The options acquired by British South Africa Holdings can be exercised any time between the 1st of June 1966 and the 1st of July 1968, or a date on which Commonwealth or its associated operating companies have produced a total of 200,000 long tons of aluminum ingots to the, in the proposed new refinery to be erected by Comelco, whichever is the latter. Kaiser Aluminum's principal interest is in its wholly owned Kaiser Bauxite Co. in Jamaica. In addition to its mining activities, Kaiser operates processing and chemical plants in the United States and Canada and has investments in aluminum mining, reduction and fabricating facilities, and marketing industries in the United Kingdom, South America, Africa, and Asia. Now, they weren't, they they didn't, Incruma didn't divide it up specifically there with the last part with the fabricating and marketing and stuff between the UK and South Africa and Asia. But it was important to, to notice that like Kaiser Aluminum was talking about, um, you know, it's bauxite extraction in Jamaica. Kaiser Aluminum was uh, pulling aluminum from Africa. And then it says the US and Canada where it has the chemical processing plants. That's the story that, you know, extract from the countries where you're colonizing back to your home countries, add value, and then sell it back to the world so that you're retaining all the profits. Yep. It operates through two fully owned subsidiaries, Kaiser Aluminum and Chemical Sales, Inc. and Kaiser Aluminum International Corporation. Like Reynolds Metals, Kaiser Aluminum only broke into the United States aluminum industry under the impetus of wartime demands for aircraft metal. Before the Second World War, Aluminum Co. of America, Alcoa, was the sole domestic producer of primary aluminum. Consolidated zinc, with an authorized capital of 25 million pounds, has extensive interests which make it a formidable controller of a number of important metals in allied chemical products. Formed less than 15 years ago, in February 1949, its purposes were to develop, extend, and carry on or finance, either itself or through any of its subsidiary or associated companies, the development, extension, and carrying on of the lead and zinc mining and other or raw material producing industries, and the smelting, refining, and manufacturing, and other industries associated therewith. 
throughout the world, and particularly in the Commonwealth. <laughs> that that had to be a mouthful. That was a <laughs> sentence. <laughs> All this apparently has no connection with Africa, but we have only to look at some of the directorates to discover immediately how close the links are with the Oppenheimer Network and the financial groups that associate with it. Again, even when it seems like it not isn't directly involved or is a different company, it's the same damn people with the same damn structures colonizing the same damn places. Yeah. Such, such are the mammoth gold-clad interests that are behind the consolidated Zinc Rio Tinto merger. The new holding company, Rio Tinto Zinc Corporation Limited, was created by a financial operation that gave shareholders of consolidated zinc 58 ordinary shares of 10 shillings each with the new company in exchange for every 20 shares of one pound in consolidated zinc. Rio Tinto stockholders received 41 shares of 10 shillings each in the new company for every 20 ordinary stock units of 10 shillings held in Rio Tinto. Preference shares in both companies were also exchanged for preference shares in the new one. The merger brings Rio Tinto Zinc well into the forefront of the aluminum field, accentuating its already important position in the zinc, lead, and non-ferrous metals. It brings consolidated zinc more fully into the sphere of mineral exploitation in Africa by reason of Rio Tinto's holdings in some of the principal concerns operating South Africa, Rhodesia, and elsewhere. The connections with the American, Canadian, and Australian industrial and financial scenes are apparent from the foregoing very brief review. Through these interests, the Rio Tinto Zinc Combine has additional strings which lead back again to Africa. Skipping another chart, this time it's Consolidated Zinc's interest, and it goes from, you know, British to Rio Tinto to Kaiser Aluminum, basically what we just spelled out. Yep. Um, there are some rare and localized non-metallic materials which are used in basic and secondary industries. These include asbestos, corundum, mica, vermiculite, phosphate rock, gypsum, mineral pigments, flower spar, and silica. The most important is asbestos. Yeah, that's, baby! That's dated. Um, yeah, baby, get that asbestos! It is found in the three principal fibers, chrysolite, chrysid crocodolite or blue asbestos and i prefer asomite. to read crocodolite as crocodolite because i imagine it's a crocodile because the gators blue, are our friends blue asbestos is a crocodile blue asbestos blue space what the fuck <laughs> i turned real british there for a minute um all three fibers have certain common characteristics they are all non-inflammable non-conductors of heat and electricity non-inflammable did he mean non-flammable maybe I think inflammable. I think inflammable means what you think flammable means. It's one of those weird ah, words. Okay, they are practically inabsolute in acids and are capable of being spun into textiles. So again, if it wasn't for the whole cancer thing and the whole exploiting Africa thing, it would be perfect. But a couple of big sins there. Um, it is slightly. Oh, in it, it is slight differences in these qualities that give them different uses. Chrysolite is the most resistant to fire, and its strong, fine, flexible texture makes it highly suitable for asbestos textiles and for use in brake linings, clutch facings, and insulin insulation fittings, you know, like the ones that were in houses giving people cancer. Uh, it is used also for asbestos boards and asbestos cement products. Blue asbestos has greatest tensile length, strength and resilience, though it is not so resistant to fire, withstands acid and seawater better. It is used chiefly in the manufacture of filter cloth, boiler mattresses, insulation packings, and asbestos cement products. Amosite has a fiber length of three to six inches and has a greater resistance to heat than, than the blue asbestos. I can't pronounce the crocodile word. And greater resistance to seawater than... 
I thought blue asbestos was crocodolite. No, crocodolite or blue asbestos and okay. amosite. Okay. Uh, these qualities make particular suitable for the spun materials and aircraft. South Africa is at present almost the only place in which both blue asbestos and amosite are found. Canada is the greatest producer of chrysolite. South Africa and Rhodesia are far behind. So apparently they made airplanes out of asbestos. I didn't even know that was a thing. I assume um, they didn't make them out of asbestos. I, I don't want to imagine a giant <laughs> flying piece of asbestos, but uh, I think I'm sure. I think they shoved that shit in everywhere, man, for a while. There. Yeah, they were, apparently they were jamming that and lead paint on basically everything they could get this, their hands this, on. Yeah, it's like this could solve everything. Yeah, no, it's it's how we're going to learn in like 20 years that Teflon is is killing us all somehow. I don't know. Yeah, I'm I'm sure we probably are. I, Basically, everything that like we need to do with hemp, which is not going to be a magical fix-all. There never is a magical fix-all, but it's the closest thing there is. We've fucked up with dangerous stuff already. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. <laughs> uh, South Africa deposits are mainly in Swaziland and Eastern Transvaal. They're in the virtual control of the British firm Turner & Newall Limited, registered in 1920, which has its hands in 90% of the British asbestos trade. Just a bagging trade, the asbestos I bet trade. Turner & Newall Limited didn't do great after, <laughs> after the <laughs> <Yeah>. 80s. <laughs> This fact enabled it to secure an agreement in 1930 with the Soviet Union regulating deliveries to the continental market. An important producer of high-grain chrysolite, the Soviet Union ceased the export after the last war. So the Soviet Union stopped the export of asbestos after World War II. I didn't even know that. I'm going to go ahead and say that's probably not because they realized asbestos gave you mesothelioma. I think there's probably something else going on here. I I feel like, yeah, I feel like they were just like running short on on areas to mine it out of. Yeah, yeah, they Um, probably kept it all in-house for their own asbestos planes. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) Hop on the asbestos bird, folks. Asbestos air taking off. <laughs> Superficially unimposing, Turner and Newell's board has its chairman, Ronald G. Scott Hill, who is associated with the insurance world as a director of Liverpool and Glo- Globe Insurance Company. It's good to know that the asbestos tycoons were in insurance. Just oh, yeah. like fucking <laughs> exactly where they needed to be. <laughs> and Royal Insurance Company Limited, and with finance as a director of the District Bank. Its capital, however, is impressive, being authorized at £60 million, with almost £50 million paid up. Originally $3 million, the increase in the size of the company's capital gives it an indication of the growth of its dominance of asbestos mining and allied industries. This capitalization becomes more articulate when it is re- related to the sweep of the Turner and Newell Asbestos Kingdom, which is rooted in African and Canadian mines. A holding company, it has a network of subsidiaries throughout the world which manufacture and sell asbestos, magnesia, and connected products. See chart 7, the asbestos chart that we're not to yet. Yeah. Um, a recent survey reveals that some 60 to 70% of the world's total business activity is controlled by less than 2% of the companies in the world. Let's read that again. A recent survey reveals, and this is this is in the 60s, a recent survey reveals that some 60 to 70% of the world's total business activity is controlled by less than 2% of all the companies in the world. He really could have sent- just made that sentence the last, like, four chapters give or take yes yes basically i mean that's what we've been reading we've been laying that out very very well that's it in one sentence the colossal unilever trust is a pertinent perfect illustration of this monopolistic ratio of control did we we did a mini madness oh, out of we how europe absolutely underdeveloped africa, did a mini madness on dr walter rodney's how europe underdeveloped africa specifically yes. on unilever and it looks yeah. like now we're going to get Nkrumah's take on on that massive fuck of an empire 
There we go. For millions of housewives, there is no such thing as a corporate entity called Unilever. There's just the daily routine of choosing between Life Buoy and Lux, Pepsodent and Gibbs, Omo and Surf. They have changed all of these names. None now it's of like, these exist. <laughs> no, but now, now it's all like, you know, Irish Spring and Tresemme and it's still every fucking thing that's not Nestle is Unilever. Um, of buying, of buying Lipton's tea. That one's still around. That one's there. Wall's sausages. I didn't even know Unilever did sausages, but they do everything else. Why am I surprised? Bird's eye frozen foods. That's, that's still a still thing. there. Fly talks, stork margarine, uh, and Harriet Hubbard Ayers cosmetics. From the view, they, they're much more extensive in cosmetics now. They they have yeah. all kinds of companies in cosmetics. Probably half the cosmetic aisle is Unilever. And and the way I said, like every pizza is Nestle. Probably like every cosmetic product is Unilever. Every soap is basically Unilever. Um, from the viewpoint of the tax collector, also, Unilever is still not a corporate entity, but two separate companies. Unilever Limited, the British company, and Unilever MV, the Dutch company. And and remember, these were two different groups. There was Lever and there was, um, I forget what the other company was, but it merged. We talked about that when we read Dr. Ratney's uh, work. So, um, and it was, I forget also, what the other Also, I'm going to go ahead and... I'm going to go ahead and make a, a correction, a small correction. Yes. A lot of those brands that we read that were like, these are gone, actually exist. They're just European brands. Holy shit. Okay. If there you go you to go. Unilever's, if you go to, I was, I was just browsing Unilever's, uh, uh, what they've got. And almost, almost all of those still show up on their brand list just under European. Christ. Okay, so cool. So to our European listeners, we're sorry for being dumbasses, but we we only know so many grocery aisles. Um, I'm about to say, I've got my own set of bad standard stock grocery products, damn it. I can't keep track of yours, too. Yeah, half of which are Unilever and the other half are Nestle, and and there's just no fucking choices in this world. Um, Yeah, also, all the ice cream, all the ice cream, that's Unilever. Yeah, except, um, um, isn't Blue Bunny uh, and, and Briar Nestle? I think those. I mean, probably, say. but no. Briar yeah. is absolutely Unilever. So is Ben oh, and Jerry. Briar's so is Good Humor. Klondike Magnum, Popsicle, just Popsicle. The brand Popsicle. Yeah. You can't do that, Unilever. <laughs> they own has- Axe Body Spray. These people are the devil. <laughs> It has subsidiaries throughout Europe in Belgium, Austria, Denmark, Germany, Finland, Italy, Sweden, and Switzerland. And all of these countries, it tends to control the production of soups, frozen foods, soap, margarine, insecticide, detergents, cosmetics, and edible oils. It also has powerful and century-old interests in Latin America, West, Central, and South Africa, India, Ceylon. Where is Ceylon? I don't. I, it's a valid I question. I knew- I'll find out. I was going to say, oh, usually- uh, say lot, no, that's all right. Bad on us. That is the uh, former colonial name of Sri Lanka. Oh, okay. Okay. So, okay. So Sri Lanka, let's uh, um, translate that. Malaysia, Trinidad, Thailand, and the Philippines. I know there's been some dated names for African companies and we've just said them because that's what's in the book. Yeah. Since, since we didn't know since what Since we had was. no idea what the hell Cylon was anyway, then yeah. we're going to, at least for yeah, education. We're, we're just going to, yeah, that's Sri Lanka. Okay. Uh, Unilever's most robust offshoot overseas is the United Africa Company, throughout which the trust became known as the Uncrowned King of West Africa. 
The United Africa Company is the world's largest international trading company, and contrary to the belief that the liberation of colonial territories would automatically suppress monopoly capitalism, the Unilever empire continues to flourish. This is because it has known how to adapt its policy to the, quote, challenge of the times, unquote, as a company report puts it. And so Unilever is applying its profit-making objectives to other more yielding sectors. It has accelerated its withdrawal from West African merchandise and produced trade to concentrate on development in cars, engineering, and the pharmaceutical sides of the business. The neocolonialist aim is not only to export capital, but also to control the overseas market. Thus, attempts are subtly made to prevent developing countries from taking any decisive steps towards industrialization, since the exploitation of the indigenous expanding market is now the prime objective. If the attempts to prevent the industrialization fail, then all costs of the trust must secure a participation in a development it cannot prevent. And it is but and by its very nature, this participation thwarts any further progress since it ensures a regular flow of payments into the coffers of monopoly capital in the form of royalties, patents, licensing agreements, technical assistance, and equipment and other services. It also gives priority to the assembling and packaging of foreign products often presented under the false labels of indigenous concerns. Oh, we've you know, heard we that fucking story before. Yes, yes, we have, right? You know, I mean, <laughs> just... Jeez. Unilever's present emphasis on the packaging industries is no coincidence. So again, these guys are bastards, just yeah. bastard coded bastards. And what they do is they make sure that when they're pushed out of a market, they just let it happen. But then they have to just completely like bombard any export um, where there is no market for it. They're investing in other things. They're controlling the buyers, right? They went from horizontal, um, Integration, integration to to immediate vertical integration so they control the buying and the selling and then they crumple these indigenous companies and then they're like here we're going to help your country out we're going to make sure you have your mining interests secured with contracts with us and all of a sudden they're right back to controlling vertical integration right neocolonialism in a nutshell yep the up-to-date trust relies on the amount of the dividends that relies uh, the up-to-date trust relies less on the amounts of the dividends, there's that pesky little word, than on certain <laughs> clauses in the company agreements which make indigenous capital dependent on monopoly capital for the renewal of contracts and for the allocation of funds. It is significant that in a recent issue of the New Commonwealth, the United Africa Company has been referred to as the gentle giant. Oh, my e God. Monopoly <laughs> methods have become more subtle, but Lever's famous statement still seems to hold true. After all, we are working for the permanent interests of Britain. Damn, that is a way to end a chapter. That is a way to end a chapter, and that is a way to end a goddamn episode, because yes. you know what? We're right there, and we're we're once again, we're going an episode per chapter now. That's our that's our that's, new pace, apparently. It's fun. I, I was going to say, that's, that's surprisingly structured. We'll be able to say this is episode chapter 12. I don't think yes, we've done that yet in a, we like a while. Oh no! Yeah, we used to do it. You remember back when we covered full chapters in an episode because we thought yeah, we were we, we thought we, we were smart them. and good and, and knew yeah. what we were doing. No, no. <laughs> it's just no, like old, you've referenced capital. That's just like old times. Old uh, times, baby. Yes, but yeah this this chapter was well. It was what it took to quote a famous philosopher. It was who we thought it was. Um, yeah. This was a uh, uh, 
a very another intricate detailing of the specific companies now um, mm-hmm. in this particular part of Africa that are are collaborating and coalescing around this concept of neocolonialism through monopoly, through finance extraction, through mineral extraction, um, and through labor exploitation. Um, yeah, and, and that's yeah. Go ahead. I, oh, I was going to say, and I, I do think we're going to take a turn back towards the metal mining, which is a lot of this chapter, but I feel like with the lever turn, there was a little bit of a turn rather than just they're all, all the, the CEOs are, you know, in the other board of directors and they're all in each other's pockets and these mergers are already connected and they're all imperial powers. There was a little bit more of like, this company is controlling this resource by blocking people out, right? There was a little more meaty content in there of like, how they're constructing neocolonialism rather than just they're the same. And I think ending with the lever uh, example was was a big key to that. I think that really helped the chapter out and helped set the tone of like, you know, these companies are not, you know, I, obviously we're not saying that, that they're not fighting wars anymore. You know, um, certainly they do that for mm-hmm. oil and God knows what, right? They're sending out private security forces to – to you know, work with the CIA and coup places to keep their market open. They're they're you know shooting like having Coca Cola shoot workers. You know, I mean it, these things happen, right? But for the most part, on a broad te- you know context, they're just bullying them as a standard monopoly, right? They they siphoned all the capital out, um, and they basically you know underdeveloped these countries. I and mean, when these countries are starting to uh, materialize development, right? As they're starting to, um, um, I can't think of the industrialize. These co- countries are starting to industrialize and, and figure out their export markets. Uh, these companies are not only making sure that these uh, countries are fully invested in just raw materials just to keep up, rather than ever getting to develop the the infrastructure industrialization and actually export the finished products themselves, but by jumping onto these different forms of vertical and horizontal integration, they're making sure they corner these markets so that you know, even the exports can't really get on track and go right back to these companies. They're just crushing entire countries like smaller companies trying to get into a market. Mm-hmm. On global scales, national, continental scales. It is terrifying. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, that being said, uh, that, like we said, is where we're going to leave it for the week. Uh, this has been <coughs> Mark's Madness Pod. There are a number of different ways that you can reach out to us if you'd like to. Uh, one of which is to email us. You can email us at marksmadnesspod at gmail.com. You can also hit us up on Twitter if you would so like. Our Twitter is at marksmadnesspod. Uh, there on the bad place with the bad brain stuff and all the, you know, the good takes. <laughs> uh, and last but not least, you are more than encouraged to join our Discord server if you have gotten this far through the podcast because, gosh darn it, if you've listened to this much of me talk, you'd probably want to listen to more of me ramble through text form. Uh, just kidding. I am very, I'm a very low percentage of the things that go on in Discord, and I'm proud of that because I have much, there are much smarter people in there doing much better things, uh, including Book Club, which is currently working their way through Lenin's What is to be Done. They are probably more than halfway through at this point, but it is always a good time to jump on in and, and hang out with Book Club on Friday nights. Uh, beyond that, 
uh, it's just a good place to be if you would like to talk to other people who are like-minded and of the same leaning as you, more likely than not. And also, if you want to play Final Fantasy XIV, uh, if you're if you're into that uh, rating stuff, you're looking to do Savage, come on down. Well, I'm, I'm kidding. We don't do Savage. We're, we're not maniacs. Um, that being said, I've alienated enough of our audience. David, it's time for the disclaimer. <laughs> yes. So, uh, ever since this podcast started, what happened was Nathan came up to me one day and was like, hey, I want to read Capital because, you know, see what all the fuss was about and that is definitely a book you read with other people as you should do with any work of theory or history um to make sure you actually review it understand it soak it in also tie back to context and also so that you know with your collaborative thoughts you can um better get a take on it and better understand how it relates to you what it means to you um and how it's going to apply to your lives and so since the beginning um we recorded it we thought hey you know a reading group with more than two would be good lo and behold we got that reading group with more than two every time you guys listen and we're happy to have you along for the ride and our hope has always been that hopefully you're in some kind of party some kind of group organizing out there doing the work and in your political education or reading groups in that party or that organization you're reading this along with us and we can be a couple more voices in that group we can give another point of context uh, another point of input and and perspective to help you fully get what you need out of the works um let's say that's not happening and you're just reading this on your own because your group is uh, political education or reading group is pointing to other works you know maybe something more applicable to what you guys are working on just uh like you know we have another uh book club nathan was talking about was doing uh uh uh, what is to be done you know maybe your party's doing what is to be done because they're they're trying to look at uh being a vanguard party um you know and let's say they're doing that hopefully we can be that reading group uh we can be that political education group a little bit and give you some more context you know make you pause and, and soak in and understand the the book by taking a second look at it um and let's say that's not happening and it's either a book that we summarize uh, or a book like this where we're basically reading it word for word as an enhanced ebook whatever we can do to make these works more accessible to you because we want them out there guiding your actions uh and when theory is brought about into political action that's a phenomenon called practice Praxis. Uh, by definition, praxis cannot exist without theory. And of course, theory is completely useless without praxis. They go hand in hand. They are tied at the hip. Amen. As always, that being said, this has been Mark's Madness Pod. My name is Nathan. My name is David. And we will talk to you all next week. Bye. Bye.